Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Um, If you brought a Bible with you, turn to Acts 17. That's going to be the text that we are going to look at today. My name is Luke, by the way. I haven't met some of you. It's good to have you here. Welcome to Legacy Church. Acts 17, as we go through um, this series on Jesus' people. Don't raise your hand if you've ever done this. You'll incriminate yourself. But I'm going to ask a question. How many of you have ever gone cow tipping? Yeah, Chris just raised his hand anyway. So listen, cow tipping is one of those things that is much cooler on TV than it is in real life, okay? I will tell you as one who has at least attempted to it, I've never tipped a cow over, but I've tried to tip a cow over. And once you get in front of a big hairy animal like that, you put your hands on it and you push and you push, it's just not that funny. (laughs) It's just not as much fun as I thought it would be, you know? Um, And what I would love to do today is I would like to teach everyone in here how to tip a cow, Because the longer I live in this city, the more not just cows do I see that need to be tipped. I see golden cows. I see golden calves, idols. Knoxville is full of idols. And the longer I live here, the more I see them. Now listen, when I say idol, that might be strange language for some of you. I'm not necessarily talking about a small statuette or some weird altar or or like a Buddhist statue in in a Chinese food restaurant, even though I guess that could be considered an idol of some sort. I'm talking about the ones we create with our hearts. You can make an idol out of just about everything. I mean, the way we are as people, it's just not that hard for us to do that. You can make an idol out of your kids. You can make an idol out of your marriage, your job. You can make an idol out of just about anything that you think is going to give you what you really want. Whether it gives you approval, security, comfort, glory. If you think something, anything will give you what God is already freely able to give you, you'll break that thing. It becomes an idol. And uh, Knoxville has its own set of idols. Just like any city, any city USA has its own distinct set of idols. And so the passage I want to go through today is a pretty core passage for us as a church. It's very important. In fact, it's one of the passages um, that helped form the bones to our very church. It's one of the things that we looked at as a little bit of a cornerstone as we put legacy together way back in the day. And it's been an important one for me. And every time I go through this passage, it challenges me freshly every time. Um, So today, if you are used to heavy, heavy preaching, there's a little bit of application, probably more teachy than preachy today, okay? So let's look at Acts 17, verse 16, and uh, what I will do is I will convince you within the first few verses, my hope is, is to persuade you to see this as important for you and important for you today. This is what the word of the Lord says to us. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him. And the Greek understructure of that word provoked is actually infuriated. So it is provoked, but it's an infuriating provoke, right? His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Pause. Let this be an example to all of us right here. The education is never going to cure of mankind. It's not. The problems with mankind is not that we're just not smart enough. Building schools, building academies, improving mankind's intellect is not going to fix our core problems. This is a case study because Athens was one of the most intellectually advanced centers on earth, and the best thing they could give us was a bunch of idols. 
a bunch of idols. They had more idols than stop signs. In fact, Athens had more idols in its one little city area than all of Greece combined. And it was very common for people to say, if you were to go and visit Athens, you had a greater chance of meeting a god than you did a man. Here is my case. Knoxville is just like Athens. Knoxville is just like Athens. It's, it's full of idols. Ours just look a little bit different. We might not, of course, I think we do, and can make the case, I think that we do, have them lining the streets, but we have them in our hearts. As, as Christians of old have said, our hearts are idol factories. We can just create them out of thin air. We don't even need a statue to bow our lives to. And the proper response whenever we see the carnage of idols is being provoked in an infuriating manner. Now, when I say the carnage, when people chase after idols, and we do, it creates carnage all around us. Think about marriages that break up because the husband or the wife overworks. Think about sex trafficking, any kind of sexual addiction, racism. When you really get down to some of the nastier things that we see as a society, it is nothing more than just the carnage and the fallout of people chasing and groping after the very idols in front of them. And I think our response as a church, as a people of God, is to be infuriated. It's to be provoked as we see these things. In fact, if your heart is not provoked, we're going to talk to you a little bit later on. If your heart is not infuriated, if you're one of the uninfuriated, and yes, that's a word I looked it up. Let's look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day. So he's switching different contexts. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. There's actually a lot of teaching in there. I just want to pick out a couple things. I want to look at the Epicureans and the Stoics. Because again, I, I can make the case, I think we're Athenian here today. Knoxville is full of Epicureans and full of Stoics. You see, the Epicureans, they believe that the chief end of man and the most glorious thing a man could chase after is comfort, peace, and pleasure. That is what you were supposed to set your life out to do. Find peace, find pleasure, find comfort. And they had a view of the gods, plural. They had a view, but their idea of God was to be very detached, very distant, and to have a high, high, high degree of disinterest in people. And because God was disinterested and because God's were to them very detached, then they didn't really care if the people scrambling around on earth were misbehaving or not. So they happened to be kind of universalists as well. Everybody was getting in the door. Whatever that door was and wherever it led, everybody was getting in. Because after all, gods just don't really care. And because of this, everything was up to chance and luck. They had no idea of providence. They had no idea of any kind of architecture to history at all. Today, we have these all over Knoxville. Some of that sounded very familiar to some of you. We would call them deists. You know, Thomas Jefferson was a big believer in Epicurean thought when you study his life. People that believe that there's a man upstairs, but kind of a disinterested man upstairs. Kind of like the guy at the party who just kind of hangs out and doesn't really do anything, right? You don't really hate that guy, but you're not inviting him to all your parties either, are you? Just kind of the dude upstairs, detached, 
looking on, but not very powerful, not very excited, no plan about his reality either. So everything is up to the, to the horoscope or to chance or to luck or whatever it could provide you. And I think Knoxville is full of this. We are like one point whatever miles from the campus. You could walk there in 15 minutes from here. And they are grooming Epicureans by the bumper crop and exporting them all over. I should know I was one of them. I was a deep Epicurean. I loved it. Whenever you see the coexist stickers on the back of the car where they're real cute and they take religious symbols from all over the world and they use it to spell out a word, that's not so hip. That's about as cutting edge as 600 BC. There's Epicurean thought in that. The fact that we're all connected and everyone's the same because God's not even really that interested. And if he was, he'd give us several ways to get to him as he has. So everyone just chill out. We'll just coexist. That's Epicurean. And they were very different from the Stoics. The Stoics were pantheists. So everybody belonged to each other in a weird little harmony, right? There was what they called a divine spark, kind of this cosmic glue that held us all together. But not just you and me. I mean, a pantheist believes that God is in everything and everything has God in it. So not only do you and I have a a divine spark that connects us, but so does the mold on the side of the building or my funky toenail. Just weird things. There's God in everything. God in the stand. God in a rock. And it's the same thing as God in you and God in me. So there's this weird interconnection between all of us. Stoics were known to be kind of arrogant. Very self-sufficient. Depending on no one. Needing no one. But destiny was in their hands. They had their hands on the steering wheel and everything was up to them. Does that sound familiar at all? Because Knoxville has a bunch of Stoics as well. In fact, I'll make the case that Asheville, North Carolina, and if you're from there, welcome to Legacy Church. It's good to have you here. But that is the capital of Stoicism. You're at one. I mean, it is nature elevation and reason elevation, and we're all connected in one big hippie commune, shirtless drum circle, smelling like patchouli. I'm one with the salamander. I'm one with you. We all love each other. They have a coexist sticker on their car, all of them. It's mandatory to own a home there. You have dream catchers hanging from your rear view mirror. Listen, that is two hours away, folks. We're not different from that place. Knoxville, East Tennessee, is full of Stoics. It is full of weird philosophy. It is full of Epicureans. My case to you is that we are Athens. We're all Athenians. Religious pluralism all around us. Idol worship all around us. Self-sufficiency all around us. I think if we miss this point, then this passage doesn't serve us anymore. I mean, really, what point does it have? There's no use. I mean, Paul is in some distant place doing some distant thing for whatever distant reason. This is my submission to you. This is for us, and it is for today, which is one of the reasons it's been important to us as a church. Let's look at verse 19. And they took him, and they brought him to the Areopagus, which could either be a council of people or a place. Most people believe that it was both. I don't know that I really care. I know that it is at least a people saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's a little bit of a dig. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you were religious, 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. You worship what therefore you worship as unknown. This I will proclaim to you. I need to explain these blank altars real quick. These blank statues. You know, they're still digging them up over there. Archaeologists are still finding statues and altars with no name attributed to them. It's interesting. We don't really think like this anymore. But the Greek, especially the Athenians back then, they had a a, a unique perspective on the character of God. And God to them was always ticked off. Always angry. Always wrathful. And they needed to abate his anger and push back his wrath. And so what they would do is they would give an offering. Build a statue. Build an altar. build, Build something. And then sacrifice at the foot of that thing to make an angry God not angry. And you saw this most fluently whenever something catastrophic would happen, like a village would burn down, there would be a famine, there would be a disease sweep through a portion of, of Athens, and what they would do is they'd, they would think that a god was punishing them, so they would build an altar, quickly, build an altar. But they wouldn't really know who to address it to, so they would just leave it blank. And you know how life is. It's catastrophe after catastrophe. So I ended up having a lot of these nameless statues appeasing whatever god Now, this action of building an altar to make an angry God not angry, that is what they would call propitiation. It's a long word. It's actually in the Bible. A propitious act or an act of propitiation is providing a gift through an action to stave off wrath, to make sure wrath doesn't come. So an angry God is just not angry anymore. This is what the gospel is doing to Athens, though. Jesus is our better propitiation. It says this in 1 John. I don't know if this will be up on the screen. Will this be up on the screen? 1 John 4, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our Jews. Or for, yeah, for our sins, forgive me. For our sins. You can always edit later, you know what I'm saying? But Jesus is our propitiation. That word's not in there on accident. And that word's not even innately a Christian word. It's a word. And what God has done is made sense of that word. Because what we worship has a name. He is Jesus. He's the king of all creation. There was even a a name plaque above his head while he hung on the cross. At no point was he without a name. And a greater catastrophe was averted because he hung there. He is a propitious answer to our sin because and this might be a newsflash god is wrathful against all sin because god is pure justice but he's also pure mercy at the same time so he provides us a sacrifice to meet his justice and that is jesus christ so when paul walks in and he sees all these nameless statues that are propitious activity towards the gods he thinks this is my end this is my end i know the best propitiation around, and his name is Jesus. This is the first point I want to make. Jesus' people, they will tip idols over. That's the first big point today. Jesus' people will push and topple idols over. How do you know what an idol is, though? How can you spot one? Because they're not statues anymore with names or no names around them. So how do you spot it? I want you to think about your friends. 
And I don't care if they're Christians or not, because Christians are just as good at cranking out idols as those who are far from Jesus. What do your friends talk about all the time? What are they always thinking about? And every time you have a conversation with them, it doesn't take long to get to fill in the blank. They've pinned all their hopes on this thing or this person. They've pinned all their dreams on it. Them getting this thing is a version of heaven to them. And them losing this thing is a version of hell to them. What is it? What is that thing? What is that thing they cannot live without? That may be an idol, friends. What is the thing your friend is always chasing? Because that's the thing about idols. You never really, you never really make them totally happy to give you what you think you totally need. You see, idols, they always overpromise what they're going to give you, and they never deliver. They always under-deliver. So you end up looking like the donkey, chasing after the carrot, always grabbing, always grabbing. And that idol in your ear, whatever it is, is whispering that you're almost there. You almost have the perfect body. Almost. And then you'll feel like you want to feel. You just need to work 10 more hours a week, and then you'll get the comfort that you need, the security that you need, the approval that you've always wanted. And idol tells you always in your ear, you are almost there. Just keep giving, keep sacrificing, keep giving your time to me, keep giving your talents to me, keep giving your treasure to me, give your calendar to me, give your checkbook to me, give everything to me, and I will give you what you really want. Can you see that in your friend's life? Because this is how we find idols. And when we push idols over as people of God, you have to do that knowing that if you just bring Jesus to the mix, they're going to take your Jesus and put it up on the shelf they already have with all their other little Jesuses. Oh, you're bringing Jesus to me? Great. Sounds like he can help me get what I want. I've got a lot of those things up here. Stick them on the shelf. A bunch of mini Jesuses. You have to push idols over. You can't just add Jesus to their idols. You have to show them this is destroying you. It's destroying you. It's an offense to God. It's a spit in God's face. Jesus is better than what this thing is never able to give you. You think a guy can give you what you really want? Jesus is better. You think a job is really going to give you what you want? A perfect body, perfect health, perfect grades, perfect career? You have to push those idols over. And that's what Paul's doing right here. Let's look at verse 24. This is a real key passage. The God who made the world and everything in it. This is Paul's preach to them. This is how he kicks it off. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he even needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Point number two. Jesus' people, they describe God's character. His character. This is very important. You see, what Paul is saying in these two verses right there is a direct challenge to the way that the Greeks saw everything. You have the Stoics who, they're looking at at God and they see him as, you know, not real involved with their affairs because they're self-sufficient. They're the ones that are deciding what is up and what is down. They're the ones that think that they're in charge of everything and everything is at, at, at the power of their hands. And Paul is saying, oh, no, no, no. That's not what's going on at all. God is very interested. In fact, you can't even breathe without him giving you breath. The Epicureans are thinking that he's totally disinterested. There's such a big delta between us and God, and he doesn't even look at us with any affection or regard. And Paul says, oh, no, no, no. Everything, everything you have, 
comes from him. Even Jesus, everything, he regards you greatly. I think with Knoxville, as we love this city well, part of us loving this city well is painting the attributes and the character of God in a better light than how they see it. Because you know how Knoxville sees God right now? Disinterested, distant, detached, like an Epicurean, not in, in nature and everything, helpless, pitiful, angry all the time, warped, Republican. However, there's all kinds of descriptions that whenever you go out and ask your average Knoxvillian, how do you see God? They're not going to give you what the Bible says most time. Your average person because I was one of them, just like you, before Jesus rescued my heart, I had this view of God that was a little bit closer to like a Mr. Potato Head, right? You've got like two eyes that are pointed in different directions and like one arm and a peg leg that didn't match and a lady's hat on and he didn't even have a little latch on his back to hold all the pieces in. He was just like chunks of what he should be and that's how I'd see God. Not very correctly, mismatched, unbalanced, didn't understand. Everything I knew about God, I got from Saturday morning commercials and cartoons. I would get from the hack philosophers I'd skateboard with or run around town with. And that was the good part of my education. It really went upside down when I went to college. Not going to find a whole lot about how God looks in college. It's very accurate. It took somebody coming into my life, a good messenger, a good witness, a good missionary, to push some idols over and say, hey, you've got this weird view Luke, I've listened to you talk a few times about how, you know, God is not just. That this is happening over here and God is not just. And this happens right in front of you and it proves to you that God is not just. Luke, I've heard you say that God is not truly love or that he's not patient. And he began to show me through the passages of scripture and just through reason itself that God is. He is perfect love. He is perfect justice. He's perfect patience. And his eyes are on us because he's engaged in us. When I heard that, the gospel made sense to me. Mr. Potato Head doesn't give you a very good gospel because his characteristics are all askew. What kind of good news could that be? If you've got a mismatched God where his attributes are all over the place, then what kind of good news really is the gospel? Jesus isn't more good news. He's just bad news then. He's just more bad news. He's the snobby older brother that came to live perfectly to spit in your face and show it and rub it in that you can't do it. Oh, and by the way, he brings more rules too. As if Exodus and the Ten Commandments weren't enough, he brings the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and dumps those on our lap too. How is that more good news? Unless God is perfect love and he is perfectly just and he knows everything and he is all-powerful. We have to do this work, the work that Paul is doing here of repainting a biblical God. Because then, friends, the gospel makes sense. Look at verse 26. I've got to move on. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we indeed are his offspring. Here's point three. Jesus' people, we communicate in the city's language, which means we're a contextual people. Let me explain what that means. 
They were pulling, or Paul was pulling, from two famous poets of the time, Epimenides and Aratus. And these were poets that would have been known by most of your people. Today, it would be like digging something out of a Kanye West song or some movie that Matt Damon was in. And good luck with that. But if you were to take a couple lines from those and crunch them together and start off a gospel presentation, that's effectively what he did. Now, did Paul do this to be hip? No. No, he did it to be clear. He did it to be clear crystal clear, in a language that they would understand. This is the basis behind that. God has been clear with us. Most of you right now have a Bible in your lap or an app that you're using on your phone, right? That shows that God's been clear with us. He could have spoke to us like a whale or a dolphin or a cat, but he didn't. He could have just held everything to himself, but he didn't. He was clear. He spoke to us in human language. And sure, it's been translated from one language to the language that we speak, but it was in a language telling stories, connecting people, being very clear. This is called contextualization. It's another big word. Contextualization is just this. It's bringing a message to a people in a way that they can understand it using their language. And to prove that God was contextual, he comes as man. Can't miss that. He comes as man. It says this in John. If you look in John chapter 1, you don't have to. I'm just going to read it to you. It'll be up on the screen. But the whole first chapter of John describes this. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's almost like God is saying, don't you understand? Do you not understand? I'll show you. And then he comes as man. Look at my son. That's love. It's contextual. We can see it. It's in our terms. He lived among us. You want to see passion? Look at my son. You want to see mercy? You want to see righteous anger? Look at my son. You want to see how to be a servant, how to sacrifice, how to be discipled, how to disciple? Here's my son. Crystal clear. Crystal clear. It's a beautiful gift to us. And the thing is, is because Jesus was our perfect first missionary. He's the first missionary. And he came in a contextual way. He's calling us, you and me as well, to come in a contextual way. It says this in John 17. This is Jesus praying to his Father. He says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. To do what? To be contextual. To speak in a way that the culture understands. Here's the thing about contextualization, though. It's going to both attract people and repel people. The clearer that we are, the more we're understood. It's going to draw people in, we see here, and it's going to push people away, as we will see here in a little bit. This is what Ed Stetzer, who's a famous missiologist, he said this quote, and it's been very helpful to me. It's not giving people the answers that they want. It is giving them God's answers, whether they want it or not, in forms and language that they can understand. So is being hip the the key and the goal here? No, it's being clear. It's not about being cool. It's about being clear. But here's the thing. The more clear you are, the more rejection you'll feel. Some of you have been rejected and you wonder to yourself, am I being clear? Am I screwing this up? Listen, if you're being rejected, there might be a very good chance you're on point. They understand all too well what you're saying. The result of being clear is not 100% acceptance. So you have to be careful. 
Also need to be careful not to fall into a couple ditches. There's a couple ditches that missionaries fall into. Darren Patrick's been very helpful in some of his writing and teaching on this. When we fail at contextualization, we fail in one of two directions. One is under-contextualization, and one is over-contextualization. And all of us in this room are tempted to do both. We're tempted, I am. We're tempted to do both. Under-contextualization is this, forcing the city to obey our constructs, traditions, and preferences so that they meet us on our terms. Meet me on our terms, on my terms. Back when I was studying in the school of missions, I would see stories of the old British Empire exporting missions teams to Africa, some people who had never even received the gospel before. And instead of translating the Bible to whatever their native tongue was, they would require everyone to learn English before they knew anything. Or if they sang a song like, God, how almighty are you? If they were to sing um, any kind of song, it would always be in the British tongue. It would be in English, in King James language, and they wouldn't even know what they were singing. That's a gross and abject failure on the side of under, under contextualization. Our hearts want to do this. My heart is tempted to under contextualize because I want people to meet me on my terms. It's, it's, it's a self-righteousness in our hearts that says, I can sit on my perch and require you to meet me here in this way and serve it up before I give you anything. I think all of us struggle here a little bit by wanting our sinners not to be real bad sinners. I want them to not smell like alcohol. You know, there's a difference between alcohol on the breath and alcohol through the pores if you've done any life with those who struggle with alcohol. I don't want them to smell like pot anymore. I don't want them to cuss anymore. I don't want them to look dirty anymore. I don't want them to act dirty anymore. I want them to clean it up before I let them in my house. I want them to clean it up before I spend any time or before I bring my kids around them. That is under contextualization. It's under contextualization because we're expecting them to be clean before they come to us. And then you know what? They can meet us here, 10 a.m., 10.30 a.m., whenever we meet, here at Legacy Church. They could come here if that's what they want, but we won't go to them. We won't crawl off our perch. The other ditch is over-contextualization. And this is jettisoning any kind of biblical truth or practice just in hopes that we can kind of savor maybe a friendship or, or an opportunity. And this we've seen here in just recent weeks. Right? The emergent church has been known to over-contextualize. It's never been guilty of under-contextualizing. So when gay marriage... Um, came out whenever the Supreme Court made its decisions. This was a big deal. That happened on a Friday. It wasn't even Sunday before most churches had cast their stone. And what they would say is, I heard churches say, you could come here. You could come here because love wins. We accept you no matter what your lifestyle is. We're excited about this. Now, what have they done? It's a classic error. It's not new. It's just over-contextualization. I know what's going on in their heart because it goes on in my heart. You're working with a lot of people who might be gay, who are struggling with a gay lifestyle, not struggling with a gay lifestyle, and you want to save that friendship. I'm with you. I'm with those pastors. I'm, I want to save that opportunity. I don't want to bring a hard word into the conversation. It might blow things up. It might destroy this. And after all, love wins, doesn't it? Yeah, love wins, though. Love, love is one on the cross. And because love won on the cross and out of an empty tomb, it tells us we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to live under the bondage of sin no matter what the sin looks like. That's how love wins. Love wins is not necessarily, it is not just tolerating everything that comes down the pike. 
as a church, we have to watch out. We have to be careful that we don't over-contextualize. Making the front door of this church so big, or God's church, any church, so big that all sin, any sin, even specific sins, are tolerated. You can come. It could be a problem, and my heart wants to do this too because I don't want to blow relationships up. So it's not self-righteousness I'd struggle with. It'd be self-preservation. I don't want air to leak out of the room. You know what I'm talking about? You're there at lunch. You know you have to say something hard. Before you even say it, you could start to, you, you get caught in mouth. You get the shakes. You don't know how to say it. You're pretty sure as soon as it comes out of your mouth, it's going to blow this relationship up. And so instead of sticking to biblical truth and being gentle with it, now when I say biblical truth, I'm not talking about being just a donkey about it. I'm saying being gentle, being truthful, being humble, being honest, being careful, unpacking it, loving them well. We have to be careful that we don't abandon truth. We can communicate with the culture's terms, but we don't have to communicate on the culture's terms. Hear that. We don't have to communicate on the culture's terms. Both these temptations to under-contextualize and over-contextualize are in us all. It's a gospel fracture. And the good news for all of us, the good news for me today as well, is that the gospel frees us from this. Because whether you over-contextualize or you under-contextualize, what your heart is really screaming is, I need to be comfortable. I don't want them to reject me. I want to be comfortable. I want them to clean themselves up before they come into my backyard, so I want to be comfortable. This is the deal, though, because Jesus was a propitiation. God is your comfort. Whether people reject you, God loves you. He's never going to turn his nose up on you. You can blow up relationships. God, God does not reject you. You don't have to break mission in half to get comfort from other people because God has become our comfort through the gospel. It's so important for us. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. That's Jesus right there. Whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead is a beautiful gospel for us. Here's the fourth point. Jesus's people are called, or Jesus's people are called to call the city to repent. We are to challenge the city to repent, and I get it. That's a big 1950s-ish word, isn't it? Just to say the word repent has a lot of connotations to it, but what we're doing is we're asking a city to turn away from death, turn away from their idol chasing. I mean, how has that worked out for anyone? challenging them to turn away from that to life. And we, we don't, we're just not out there just to, to, to tell people good news without a repentance to it. We have to call them to repent. That's what Paul is doing right here. Lay down your own crowns. Bow before a king who has a crown on. Turn away from your kingdom. Come into another kingdom. Turn, change. We have to do this. Because listen, and hear me clearly, and this convicts me to this day, I have friends you have friends. We all have friends and family, neighbors and coworkers who will stand before God and they will answer for how they handled their sins. My friends are going to do that. My friends are going to answer before God with where they claim their righteousness to be. Did they make up their own righteousness? 
or did they accept the righteousness that came by Jesus? All of my friends are going to have to explain their idols. My relatives, my neighbors. Friends, this is our city. Our city is going to be before God. Our city, our friends. We have to call them to repent. It's the most loving thing you can do. It's not love at all to let them sit in their sin. It's no love at all to just pretend that everything is okay. That's not loving. Love doesn't win. That's cowardly. You are free. You are free to apply the gospel to your friends. And then when they've seen the good news, to challenge them to step away from a crappy lifestyle of chasing idols who have done nothing but wreck their lives. We should be infuriated when we see that and provoked to do nothing else but preach the gospel. Verse 32, I want to finish this. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named um, Damaris and others with them. And that finishes that passage right there where Paul shows us how to tip cows, how to topple idols, how to push things over and show that Jesus is better. He's done such a good job of this. Go ahead and stand with me because there's a couple, there's a few groups I want to speak to real quickly before we go into worship. And Kevin's going to come and explain what that worship is, what it looks like for us. But some of you are the uninfuriated. You're not provoked. You look around and you see the carnage that chasing after idols produces and it just doesn't really bother you that much. Have any of you been fascinated by the fallout of, the, of like the Ashley Madison thing that's going on right now? Or, or, or some bombing overseas? Or a marriage down the street that's fracturing in half? If your heart is unprovoked, if you just hear the news and go, wow, hmm, what time is it? I think it's time for lunch. If that's your heart and you're not provoked and you're not infuriated, friend, listen, there's something wrong with your heart. It's not been flipped. It it looks more like a cold and dead heart than it does a live and beating heart. Paul was provoked. The gospel provokes us to say, what? Oh, man. I hate that for that person. I I feel the pull and the pain inside of me that that's happening to that person. That's what it looks like to be infuriated and provoked. I would challenge you, if you've lived up to this day without a provoked heart and you're not infuriated, you need You need to square your shoulders with the gospel and let it wreck you. You're still living an old dead life, friend. You're groping around in the dark, but Paul says he's very near you. He's near you. Some of that, that, that's some, some of you, that's all you needed to hear today is that God is near you. You don't have to grope in the dark anymore. I'd like to talk to you just a little bit, those of you who are under-contextualized, right? The ones who are waiting for the dirty people to clean up at least a little bit, before you have anything to do with them. Let me ask you, did God do that with you? Did he sit on his perch? Well, no. He came down, and here we are with dirty people, with dirty imaginations, making dirty idols with our dirty hands. Any chance we get, we're doing nothing but declaring war on him, smelling and looking like the most horrible thing, and he comes down. He didn't under-contextualize. He was clear. He lived among us. And it frees us to do the same. And some of us are over-contextualizing. And I have to say, it is no love to this city, and it is no love to your friends to act like sin is not sin. 
what it does is it cheapens what's happened on the cross. The blood's not real blood then. What Jesus did didn't have a great effect then if sin's not really sin. That's not helpful to your friend, by the way. It's not helpful. But Luke, they won't ever talk to me again. Come on. Come on. Why don't you let God be God? Why don't you minister to them? Why don't you bring truth to them? Let the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit do. Let, let him do it. You're going to have to find times to say hard things and have hard conversations. That's a good contextualization. And then the last of you I want to talk to, and then we're going to go into worship, is just idol worshipers. And this is all of us, right? Because we all do this. We all do this. The whisper in your ears that you're almost there, it's a lie. It's a lie that your body is almost perfect enough. The money is almost there enough. The, the man is going to give you what you need. The woman is going to give you what they need. The job is going to give you what you It's a lie. It's a lie. You're going to be chasing that carrot for the rest of your life. Don't let that whisper outweigh the fact that God has gifted you with his approval, with his comfort, with his glory. He's given you everything that an idol has never been able to give you. And you are free to accept it as child. He's such a good king. Such a good king. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. You are a gentle king. You have given us approval. Not because we find ourselves approved, but because Jesus did. Jesus was approved. And when you see us, you see his perfect life. Lord, we have perfect security. A job can't give that to us. You've given it to us. And the fact that nothing can tear us apart from your grasp. We sit in your family as your children and nothing can pluck us out away from your banqueting table in your big living room. We are part of your beautiful family. Father, you have given us comfort. TV can't. Food can't. People can't. Weekends can't. They're all just vague, broken promises. But God, you fill our hearts with peace. You fill our hearts with pleasure. You fill our hearts with song. You give us everything we need. Lord, we do. We bow our, our knees and we, we throw our idols down and we say, you are God. You are good. Your gospel is better. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.